Uh, and if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way this morning to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew will be in chapter 23, uh, which is, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Dana mentioned, uh, page 828 uh, is where you find uh, today's text. This morning we are concluding uh, our American God series. Uh, if you're new with us, welcome to you. We're going to kick off a brand new series going through the book of Ecclesiastes next week. Uh, and we're looking forward to that. But we've taken these past couple months to look at what are commonly referred to as the seven deadly sins, the seven cardinal sins. Uh, lust, sloth, wrath, greed, gluttony, envy, and today, last but not least, pride. Uh, in a way, we've kind of done this series backward. Uh, because pride stands in a unique category all its own. Uh, Augustine, an early church leader, St. Augustine, saw pride uh, not as one sin among many, but really as the essence of all sin. And Jonathan Edwards, the famous 18th century American theologian and pastor, once said that pride is the most hidden, most secret, most deceitful of all sin. We know, I think most of us experientially, know that pride is a damaging sin. We're aware of that, at least in certain forms. But pride is a shape-shifter. Pride is a shape-shifter, and there are forms of it that are not as obvious. In all forms, there's this fundamental posture of pride that sets us in opposition to God. So as we've been walking through this series, in all of these seven deadly sins, these American gods, we've seen that our deepest problem really is a worship problem. Uh, we are made to devote ourselves to the worship and honor of God. When that is thrown off, we still worship and devote ourselves to other things, just they are counterfeit gods instead of the one true God. But pride, as one author in particular points out, rather than leading us further away from God, pride is unique in that it attempts to elevate ourselves above God. Not just away from God, but above God. And the outworking of us attempting to assert ourselves to the place of God wreaks the worst kind of havoc in our lives and the worst kind of havoc in the lives of other people and in all of God's good created order. One of the places that we see that, one of Scripture's refrains about pride and humility comes from Jesus' words to the crowds and to his disciples here in Matthew 23. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 15. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers." And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself 
will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and to obey what you will say to us today. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. As we examine Matthew 23 this morning, three things uh, for us to consider about pride. The substance of pride, what is it? Our crisis of pride, why is pride so pervasive in our culture and in our own personal lives? And why is that such a big deal? And then lastly, the death of pride. How do we put pride, this cardinal sin, this se- one of the seven deadly sins, to death? So first, the substance of pride. Uh, in a book about the seven deadly sins called Killjoys, uh, Jason Meyer, an author and a pastor, he unpacks uh, this six-fold definition of pride. And his definition is especially helpful to see these various forms and expressions that pride can take. Uh, Meyer talks about pride both building up The way he puts it is, it raises a toast to self, and on the other side, it tears down. It throws a pity party for ourselves. So under the building up forms of pride, he lays out these three things. Pride is self-exaltation. It's when we take credit for the good things in our lives rather than seeing them as God's good gifts. Why do we have what we have? Why do we live where we live? Why do we live in the time and the era in which we live and not another? Do we see that as something that we've had control over or something that truly is a kindness and a gift from God? Pride is also self-promotion. We put ourselves forward, we put the things in our lives forward so that other people notice and it builds a platform for other people to then see how good we are, how good we have it and tempt them to want to be like us, to listen to us, to follow us. Pride is also self-justification. Uh, which takes these things and very explicitly then makes them a counterfeit God and a counterfeit gospel. Pride is when we take credit for the morally good works in our lives. It's when we see those morally good works in our lives as the basis for our salvation, for our acceptance in the sight of God. It's when we attempt to vindicate ourselves by what we do or what we do not do. And as hopefully you heard in Matthew 23, it's these building up forms of pride that are on display in the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders of the day. They exalt themselves. And they do sit in a position of authority. As Jesus says, they sit on Moses' seat. But rather than use their authority for the thriving, for the service of other people, as all authority always is intended in the kingdom of God, Wherever authority exists in the kingdom of God, wherever it's prescribed by God, it is always for the flourishing and thriving of the people under it. But rather than that, the scribes and Pharisees are using it to elevate themselves. They're tying up heavy burdens on people's shoulders and they're not lifting a finger to help. It says in Matthew 23, they're promoting themselves. They're doing their good deeds in order to be seen. 
Phylacteries were these leather cases containing pieces of Old Testament scriptures that would be worn on the left arm and on the forehead. And they were a literal way for faithful Israelites to obey passages like Deuteronomy chapter 11, 18, where they were called to bind God's word on their hands and to bind God's word between their eyes. But the Pharisees took that and made their phylacteries broad. They made them very visible to show other people how holy they were, how much they kept the word of God between their eyes and on their arms. Fringes were tassels that were attached to the corners of a garment to remind people to obey God's commands. Again, something that they drew from Scripture in the Old Testament. Pharisees and scribes would take those tassels and make them longer, more noticeable, so everyone else could see they were the ones that really obeyed the laws of God. They loved the seats of honor at feasts and in synagogues, it says. They loved these deferential titles of rabbi, teacher, father, instructor, because those titles would elevate themselves over the other people. Worst of all, their efforts, the Pharisees and scribes, are efforts of self-justification. If we know anything about the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, it was that much of their obedience was an attempt to earn salvation, to earn favor from God. They were so consumed and preoccupied with the law of God that as Jesus says to them elsewhere, they missed the very heart of God. So their rejection of God was not through an overt denial of God or an overt turning away from God. They reject God by trusting in themselves, by trusting in their own efforts through discipline and morality rather than truly trusting in God and who he is. And these things, of course, are the more obvious forms, the more obvious expressions of pride. The flip side of the coin, the less obvious expressions, are the tearing down forms of pride. So pride is also self-degradation. Rather than exalt ourselves, we focus on how terrible we are. Pride is also self-demotion, which is kind of the same thing as self-degradation, just more public. Uh, Rather than promote ourselves publicly, we throw a public pity party to highlight how bad our life is, how how much harder we have it than other people, how we've performed worse or failed in different or better, quote-unquote, ways than others. Jason Meyer has a fantastic description of this. He says, self-demotion plans the funeral for our ego. It plans the funeral for our ego. It's like writing your own ego's obituary and putting it out there publicly for other people to read. But in so doing, it's actually a deceptive form of self-promotion. And lastly, pride is self-condemnation. We fixate on our failures. We pass judgment on ourselves for failing to live up to some standard, usually our own standard. And it leads, rather than maybe the arrogance of the building up forms of pride, the, the pride of tearing down leads to deep forms of shame where we can't fathom the world in which we would be lovable or be acceptable to God or to anyone else. Now, our lives are are a convoluted mixture of all six of these things for most of us, but there might be one or two in there, or at least, generally speaking, either the building up or the tearing down side of this that you find yourself more prone to. What I want you to see this morning and hear this morning is that both of these things are pride. Both of these things are pride. The substance of pride, whatever form it takes, is that it forgets God. It ignores the reality of God. 
It acts as if the existence of God is either inconsequential or just an outright lie. And then it exalts self to the place of God. So this counterfeit God, this American God, this seven deadly sin of pride, could just as easily be called the God of self. It's like the the seagulls in the movie Finding Nemo, if you're familiar with it. The refrain is mine, mine, I, I, self, self. It's the God of self. And to Augustine's point, uh, pride does lie at the root of all sin. It's the primary sin of both Satan and humanity. So our scripture reading this morning that Nate read for us from Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, the prophet Isaiah is foretelling a taunt that the king of Babylon would give to the people of Israel. But in that, we see this allusion to Satan's fall from heaven. That Satan once willingly worked in the service of God. But he is now the epitome of evil. He is the great enemy of our souls. What happened? What happened? Satan desired to make himself like the Most High. He wanted to be in the highest place of glory. He wanted to be God. Pride is also humanity's primary and original sin. In the Garden of Eden, man and woman disobey God. But that disobedience is rooted in pride. Genesis chapter 3 says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So how does the serpent tempt Eve? He appeals to the desire to be equal with God. He appeals to the exaltation, to the assertion of self. Pride was the source of humanity's original rebellion against God, And here's what I would have us consider this morning. It is not relented from that day until this. So second, let's consider our crisis of pride. If that's the substance of pride, what's our crisis of pride? Uh, In our culture, probably evident to many, if not all of us, pride is pervasive. Uh, It's a sin that often in our culture actually disguises itself as a virtue, So my high school football team had a motto uh, on their shirts that they wore around the school, pain is temporary, pride is forever. And I say that, I realize that could sound like I played for my high school football team, and (laughs) I I did not. I know you're shocked, my stature just, you know, screams football player, but we disguise disguise pride as a virtue, whether we call it pride, whether we call it self-esteem, whether we call it confidence, even certain forms of confidence, We essentially laud a reliance on self, a life with self at the center, and that's completely backward. It makes the root of all sin a virtue. A hundred years ago, a British author named G.K. Chesterton hit the nail on the head about this. He said this, A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, Chesterton says, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. That was almost 100 years ago. How much more true is that for us today? So pride hides disguised as a virtue, 
Pride also hides because it's not often as externally observable in its different forms. So it's different, for example, from something like substance abuse or murder or sexual sin. Pride is often internalized in our thoughts and motivations. It works its way out. It expresses itself in observable actions and words. But unless we really do the work of tracing it back to the root, a lot of pride can go on living in our hearts, in our souls, undetected. We can be seeped in pride. We can be absorbed with ourselves for years without ever really dealing with the root. Something Jesus says to the Pharisees in this text points out the real crisis that this this creates for us, both culturally and personally. Down in verse 13 of Matthew 23, he begins pronouncing a series of what will be seven woes to the scribes and to the Pharisees. Uh, These are particularly damaging things that the the scribes and Pharisees are doing uh, and creating a lot of havoc in the lives of the people that they are influencing. We'll come back to the first one in a moment, but the second one there down in verse 15. Jesus says that the Pharisees travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a, a single convert to their way of life. But in so doing, it makes that convert, that proselyte, twice the child of hell as themselves. And I would submit to you this morning that the same thing applies to us as 21st century Americans when it comes to our self-absorption. That in this sense, we have become twice the children of hell as those who have gone before. And that we run the risk of forming the ones that we influence, the people that we are involved in their lives, the ones who come after us as twice the children of hell that we are. Just under a decade ago, two psychologists, uh, Gene Twang and Keith Campbell, wrote a book called The Narcissism Epidemic. The Narcissism Epidemic. And in that book, they demonstrate that in just the past couple decades, the whole spectrum of narcissism and what is considered narcissistic has shifted. So what was once considered incredibly narcissistic activity is now just called Facebook and Instagram. And it's not to throw those platforms completely under the bus. It is to say that the amount of attention that we draw to ourselves, the amount of attention that we, attention we're tempted to draw to ourselves, the amount of self that we put forward every single day was unimaginable to a generation or two gone by. And it's now just normal to promote yourself in a way that only the most mentally unstable, self-preoccupied narcissist would have a generation ago. So think about this. To the degree that you and I are blind to that, to the degree that you and I are blind to our pride and fail to see it in our own lives, we are going to form and to disciple that into the lives of other people. And in so doing, we will make those that we influence even more entrenched in pride than we are. So let me ask you this. It's common today for us in the church to lament the state of the world when it comes to marriage, when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexuality. And I share the lament. These are some of the the big areas where our culture has turned away from the good design of God and become intent on going their own way. But where do we think that came from? Where do we think that came from? Long before the warp speed change of these past decade or two, There's been this long, slow bleeding out in our culture of pride of self at the center. And if our parents or their parents or their parents before them began to think, began to live 
as if what God wants most for us is our happiness or is our self-fulfillment rather than what Scripture teaches, our sanctification, our glory, and our good according to the design of God and his purposes. That will start us down the road of self at the center. And maybe in these initial divergences, the external results will seem smaller or the external results will seem slower and not the warp speed change that we feel like it's happening at today. But those small, quote-unquote, divergences formed and discipled into the people that they influence can multiply. They can build momentum. And if they have trained people that they can disregard God in a certain area of their life, that's that one aspect of their life belongs to them and not to God, what's to stop someone from being increasingly brazen in the way that they assert themselves over and above God? It might seem, and truly I think in some ways it is, that change is happening at warp speed today. But this underlying pride, this underlying devotion to the God of self has been stewing in our culture for generations. And God help us, if this is where we find ourselves today, what will that mean for the generations to come? The stakes are high. They're high. Jesus does not mince words in these seven woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. The first one, verses 13 and 14, says that these Jewish leaders neither enter the kingdom of God themselves nor allow others to enter. They shut the door of God's kingdom in people's faces. It is our very entry to the kingdom of God that is on the line. Jason Meyer puts it better than I could. He says, the glory of God and the pride of humanity will collide at one of two crash sites, hell or the cross. Hell or the cross. Where does he get that from? From the words of Jesus. Here, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a refrain that we find in multiple places throughout Scripture about the danger of pride and the trajectory that pride puts us on with God. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet there says that the Lord has set a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that has been lifted up, where the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, where the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And Isaiah says there in Isaiah chapter 2, the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. In other words, God will be merciful and loving. God will raise up the one who is humbled. But God will not allow usurpers to his throne. He will not allow usurpers to his throne. Imagine how disastrous that would have been if God, in some kind of warped understanding of mercy or love, let Satan usurp his throne. Imagine what that would mean for the darkness and devastation of the world. It would be just as bad for God to allow the pride of humanity to persist into eternity. And so there is a day where the pride of humanity will be brought low. There is a day where God will cast out the pride of humanity as he casts down Satan from heaven. So we can never kid ourselves about the seriousness of pride. We can never downplay it, minimize it. We can never allow it to exist disguised as a virtue. The truth is that the Lord alone is God. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And so in our own hearts and in our culture, may we put that God of self to death before that day comes.
How? How do we do that? Third and finally, let's talk about the death of pride. Death of pride. There's one way to put pride to death. And it is by seeing and by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only remedy to this. Why? Because a self-centered heart can't and won't change itself. Because it's focused by definition on self, it exalts self, it will do everything possible to keep self at the center. We, we hate the thought of surrendering that control, of abdicating that place of centrality in our lives. So you cannot will yourself, resolve yourself, discipline yourself to get rid of pride. You can't. Resolving yourself to get rid of pride and to become a more humble person is like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and resolving not to die from the fall. It's like, congratulations on your resolution. It's not going to make much of a difference. So our hearts have to be changed for us. Our pride has to be ripped out for us. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apart from any works, any merit of our own, God is the one who changes our hearts. By faith in the finished work of Jesus, God removes our hard, pride-filled hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. By the cross, he makes the basis of our salvation not our performance, but his. It's not what we do, it's what Christ has done. And he transforms the object of our attention, of our devotion, of our exaltation from ourself to himself. Matthew chapter 23 comes on the heels of a series of confrontations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And as the climax of that, the very end of chapter 22, Jesus asks them the crucial question, what do you think about the Christ? Who is he? We know that the scribes and Pharisees, almost all of them, will reject Jesus as the Christ, will persist in their own pursuit of self-justification. And that's why Jesus has such harsh and rebuking words for them like the woes of this text. They've entrenched themselves in opposition to God because of their rejection of Jesus. And we do the same thing. We're prone to do the same thing in our pride. So here's the thing. If you're here this morning and you're interested in learning about how to fight pride in your life, but you're not interested in being given a completely new heart by Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you. And any practical advice that I or anyone else would give you about fighting pride is only going to lead you further down the road of self-reliance. It's only going to lead you deeper and deeper into the pride you're trying to get out of. And lest we think this is just an issue for those who are outspoken, avowed opponents of the Christian faith, the sad reality is that people walk into churches all the time who have never really trusted in Jesus who, like Pharisees, have never had hard hearts of stone ripped out and soft hearts of flesh put in their place. And where the church and the activities of the church, the service in the church, is all just part of a self-reliant plan to better themselves or to make themselves acceptable or gain favor in the sight of God. If you hear these words and that resonates with you and you say, oh my gosh, that might be me, I would implore you, don't miss an opportunity to talk with someone about that. During communion today, I'll be available in the back. That's a great time. After the service today, that's a great time. Or sometime during the week, just let us know. It would be 
it would be so critical to spend some time thinking through that if, that if that pings on your radar as I say that. Even for those of us who are Christians who have had our hard hearts replaced, any honest Christian will tell you the war with pride continues. It continues after receiving this new heart. So how do we continually put pride to death? The scriptures set up humility as the opposite of pride. As Jesus says here in verse 12, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So we need to really understand what humility is. And perhaps many of you are like me. I carried a very warped understanding and view of humility for a long time in my life. I used to see it as a spectrum where these building up forms of pride, the self-exaltation was on one end, and the tearing down forms of pride, the self-degradation was on the other end. And so humility had to be somewhere in the midpoint of that spectrum. Well, I know that's not right, and I know that's not right, so like somewhere in the middle has to be it. But humility is never the balance between self-exaltation and self-degradation. Humility lives nowhere on that spectrum. Why? Because that whole spectrum is focused on self. No matter where you end up on that spectrum, leaning to one side or the other, if you find the dead midpoint, your focus remains on yourself. And genuine humility comes from clearly perceiving instead who God is. And then, and only then, who you are in light of him. And this is what we do every week as we gather for worship. Every time we get together in this room, it is a weekly invitation for you to believe what is true and to take up arms against the God of self. Because when we gather for worship, we see the holiness of God in our call to worship. He's perfect. He's completely good. Recognizing that, in turn, we see the depth of our own sin in contrast to the holiness of God. And with the specific sin of pride, we see how much of an affront that sin is that we want not to follow God and let him be king and Lord in in our lives, but that we want that place for ourselves. But that's not the end of it. As we recognize these things in increasing magnitude, the holy perfection of God and our rebellion against him, we recognize even more the need that we have and the very worth of what Christ has done for us. It amplifies, it magnifies the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's there in his finished work, in his example, that we find true humility. So think about this. We are not God, and yet pride is us seeking to assert ourselves to the place of God. Jesus is God, the fullness of God in bodily form, and yet Philippians 2, he does not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He empties himself He makes himself a servant. He humbles himself to the point of the most painful, humiliating death that people in the first century Roman Empire could think of. And this is the death of pride, to see who God is, to see in light of that who we are, and to see that Jesus demonstrates true humility by sacrificing himself for us. Righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God so that God might change our self-focused hearts and give us new hearts. And that we need not assert ourselves because we've been given everything through what Christ has already done. And I'll close with this. We read in Matthew 23 about how the Pharisees and the scribes tied up heavy burdens and didn't help. Jesus is not like that. He's not like the Pharisees and the scribes 
who tie up heavy burdens and won't lift a finger to help. When we are crushed by sin, when we come face to face with our pride and we see the devastation of it, how we've rejected God and gone our own way, and when we see clearly that we're, that puts us on a crash course with the judgment of God on the day that he exalts himself and himself alone, Jesus takes the penalty upon himself. So, no, he doesn't lift a finger to help. He exerts all of himself, the fullness of God in bodily form, to carry us, to lift us up out of our sin. And by faith, your life, my life, is borne up by this mighty and gracious hand of God. So may God tear out our hard hearts of pride and for our genuine good, for the genuine good of the world, may the God of self die so that the one true God may be forever exalted. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot change ourselves. And as we get ready to come to this table, we are exposed as those who need desperately your finished work to count on our behalf. Pray that you would reveal to us where pride exists in our lives, particularly those places where we're unaware of it. Put a spotlight on it so that in your kindness and your graciousness, you might expose and might tear out that pride. You might transform us to people, into people whose object of worship and devotion is not self, but truly is you. By your spirit, give us the grace to do that. And even now as we come to the table, may we see in it, may we experience at it our very union by faith with Jesus, that it is your presence in our life, your work in our life, that gives us genuine humility, that renews our focus and our eyes fixed upon you. Pray this in your name. Amen.